welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I speak with Dr. Andy Rotman, professor in the Religion Department and Buddhist Studies program at Smith College in Massachusetts, where he teaches a course on spiritual but not religious, one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States. In our discussion, we talk about who identifies as spiritual but not religious, what it might mean, but also some of the key themes driving what Andy refers to as a movement of discontent, including economic, racial, social justice, and environmental concerns. Uh, I'm joined today by Andy Rotman. Andy Rotman is a professor in the Religion Department and Buddhist Studies and South Asian Studies program at Smith College in Massachusetts. He received his PhD in South Asian Languages and Civilizations from the University of Chicago in 2003. His research concerns the ways in which narratives, images, and markets in South Asia function as part of social history and material culture. He is the translator of the inaugural volumes in Wisdom Publications Classics of Indian Buddhism series, Divine Stories, Divya Vedana Part 1 and Part 2, which are translations of some of the earliest Indian Buddhist texts. He is author of Thus Have I Seen, Visualizing Faith in Early Indian Buddhism, the recently published Hungry Ghost, and he is co-author of Amar Akbar Anthony, Bollywood, Brotherhood, and The Nation. Not only does Dr. Rotman teach classes on the religious history of South Asia, but he also offers courses in the approaches to the study of religion, the meaning of life, and spiritual but not religious, the topic of today's podcast. Andy Rotman, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm very happy to have you here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Uh, I thought I would begin with just a few statistics. According to a 2017 poll conducted by the Pew Research Center, about a quarter of U.S. adults, I think their number was 27%, say they think of themselves as spiritual but not religious. Uh, This was an increase of eight percentage points over a five-year period. Uh, Simultaneously, the number of Americans who identify as Christian has been shrinking, In the 2020 Census of American Religion conducted by the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute, white Christians now only account for 44% of the nation's religious population. This is a decline of about a third in just two decades. Uh, I think this is pretty remarkable change in American religiosity, and there's a lot to unpack here. I think, though, the first question to ask is, what does it mean to be spiritual but not religious? I mean, that's a great question. Um, The first thing I should say about spiritual but not religious is that it's not a uniform category. Uh, Various people who identify in that way, we find when we actually talk to them, uh, have different beliefs and different practices. So it's a lump sum category for a lot of people. And there are also those people who are spiritual and religious or religious, but not spiritual. Um, So we have a a wide variety of people that we're trying to capture in this idea of spiritual, but not religious. Nevertheless, as you note from your statistics, there seems to be a growing interest in certain spiritual forms and spiritual identities. 
separate from religious identities. And one has to read that against this kind of the backdrop of contemporary American history. So part of the pleasure for scholars of religion is to think, what is happening here? And how do I get to an answer? Does the answer come from a top-down approach, thinking about political forms and social forms? Or is it a bottom-up approach of deep ethnography within very specific communities? So what's nice about this issue of spiritual but not religious is right now it's being addressed by a number of different scholars in a number of different disciplines. And no one has come to a consensus yet. I'm curious though, is this something that is new? Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was if you could speak to the history of the terminology, spiritual but not religious. Uh, my understanding is it's not necessarily a new phrase or category. I don't know exactly when the term started, but we know that the term really latched on in many ways through dating sites when okay. people had to identify themselves in a particular way. Mm. And part of the uptick in the identification is that individuals had to choose kind of who am I uh, on a dating site, but also how do I want to appear on mm. a dating site? Um, so it's an interesting question of with all those people who now identify in that way, uh, is part of it outward facing in a sense, how they want to appear to others in the world or a term that they're using to make sense of themselves, their own ideas and their own practices. And that's also up for grabs. What, what do we know about the people who identify as spiritual, but not religious? Well, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of books to look at and different scholars kind of place these people in different ways. Probably the first way that people tend to place this formation of spiritual but not religious is with regard to capitalism. Mm. So we have a number of writings that place this as a kind of handmaiden to capitalism, in part because people are picking and choosing different religious and spiritual forms to create an identity or a set of practices that they like. We might think of thinking of religion and spirituality as a marketplace where people can pick and choose to assemble what works best for them, oblivious perhaps at times of the political consequences of such choices. And then there's another group of people who are looking at spirituality as a way that individuals uh, try to get out of the capitalist system where they're thinking a way of what can I do to, uh, to step out of the capitalist engine of buy and sell, buy and sell, to try to create some space for myself that's separate from the, the neoliberal world that tries to turn everyone into an entrepreneur and promote their own brands and all that kind. So those are kind of two ways and they don't come to an easy answer. And part of what I like so much about the field of contemporary spirituality and thinking about this question, spiritual but not religious, is that there are almost no easy answers. For every text I can point to that tries to label this group in one way, there's another text, another scholar who's trying to push in another direction. So it's a really vibrant zone uh, for making sense of a big swath of the American population that I don't think fully understands themselves or understands one another. Perhaps for me, what I find most interesting about this uh, subfield, we'll call it spiritual but not religious, or even modern spirituality, is that so many people tend to define themselves by what, by what they are not, right? 
I'm a lapsed Catholic, I'm a lapsed Jew, I'm spiritual but not religious. And they tend to think of themselves as isolated, separate from a community, not realizing that they do constitute a large group, as you said, right? I mean, north of 20%, but they tend to think of themselves as isolated, not a collective. So one of the questions is, will this group turn out to be a political force? Will they join together to push for something? And maybe a little later, we can talk a little bit about um, Marion Williamson's entrance into the 220, into the Mm -hmm. 2020 campaign, where suddenly there was someone who was explicitly identifying as spiritual and we could say garnering some support, although we can talk about that later. It seems to me, uh, on one hand, there seems to be a generational aspect to this, if I understand correctly, that it is mostly the millennials and Gen Z that are identifying as spiritual, but not religious, but I don't think it's exclusive to them. And one of the questions I kind of want to dig into a little bit is as I examine this, you know, and again, I don't even know what really to call it, you know, movement trend demographic, or, you know, this category, it often seems to me to be almost identical to the new age movement and the new age movement. I'm going to put with the boomers and I don't think that they ever had, you know, as big of a number um, as we're seeing now, but they have definitely been influential. So is this the same or similar to the new age movement? And if it's not, how is it different? I think it is different. And that's a great question, by the way. And part of it is a political orientation. Um, For the younger generation, and a lot of my research and interest in this has been with people who are my students' age, 18, 19, 20. And what we find is there's a pretty big divide between the spirituality and spiritual interests of the late teens, early 20s students and their parents. For a number of the young folks coming up, they are not of the Oprah and Deepak Chopra generation. And their concerns are really different. For many of my students, their uh, concerns are actually have a very different set of politics. And a number of them kind of enter into the world of spirituality as part of a call for social justice. And that's a different entry point than the boomers spirituality. It's a different, it isn't so much finding oneself as transforming the social order. And that's another dividing line within this world of spiritual but not religious is how much of it is individual versus social. How much it is about kind of digging deep to understand myself by looking inward or am I looking outward to try to understand my place in a larger kind of social spiritual world? So we have different orientations and they're surprisingly different. You know, a parallel you might think of is between first and second wave feminism, where you're like, oh yeah, they're a little bit at odds. They would seem like they would get along and at times they'll be kind of at loggerheads. Um, So I think for the spiritual but not religious contingent in the kind of the millennials, uh, 20-somethings, so much of it is social justice oriented. Um, That seems peculiar to an earlier generation who was thinking about kind of my deep inner self. Uh, it's a different conversation. 
Okay. I'm thinking in terms also here, I want to discuss this idea of the social justice because, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking in the grander scale of religion in America. And I know that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the major movements was the social gospel. And the social gospel was very much rooted in this idea of social justice. But we saw the social gospel kind of fall apart, especially after World War II. And it was after World War II that we began seeing this uh, American religiosity and Christianity being used in sort of patriotic terms as a counter to you know, the apparent growing threat of communism. And this is when we saw, you know, uh, in God we trust placed on money and God put into the Pledge of Allegiance. And this seems to have, you know, the, the, the peak of this wave seems to have been 1980 with the election of Reagan and the creation of the moral majority. But it's, it seems like in that 40-year period, there was less of a focus on social justice in terms of religion and a focus on other issues um, that seem to be driving both the politics and the religion. And I'm curious, it seems to me that maybe in trying to understand why this is happening and if this is going to be a long-term trend, does this also speak to the idea that Christianity in America, maybe some of the other Abrahamic traditions have to change? Is this kind of pushing them back towards social justice? Because, you know, Judaism and Christianity both have roots in social justice. Okay, that's, that's a number of questions all in <laughs> yes, one. Let me see what I can I know, sorry unpack. about that. <laughs> um, I think 1980 is a key moment. It isn't just the election of Reagan, but there's a moment with kind of Reagan and Thatcher. This is often thought of as the beginning of neoliberalism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and what we know, part of what happens within the domain of neoliberalism is that the wealthy get much wealthier, the extremely wealthy become much, much wealthier uh, and exert more political power. And also there's something of a flatlining for the wages of the lower middle classes and they go into enormous debt, right? I mean, how do you survive if your wages don't go up? Well, you take on debt. So there's a moment of, we might say, social justice issues coming to the fore beginning in the 1980s, precisely because of increased inequality. And we know that this is, uh, I'm hardly going out on a limb here, right? We have all the data. Anybody can read like Piketty's Capital and others to look at the ways that inequality has kind of come to a fore uh, in the last 40 years. And hardly a surprise that a younger generation would come up and look at all this inequality and think, to what extent has this been sanctioned by various religious authorities, particularly within the domain of Christianity, and say, I want out. And we could imagine that group of people latching on. So who are the respondents? I can think of Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign uh, calling for a kind of moral, not a moral majority here, but a kind of moral revolution following very much in the line of Martin Luther King and others, uh, taking a moral stance, as he says, not a religious stance, but a moral stance on these issues. Uh, so you could see kind of in both ways how 
this could arise simply as a response to economic and political issues. That's one side. But I think on the, so the question is, do religious traditions have to change? And I would say religious traditions are always changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, as scholars of religion, we know that, you know, religious traditions are always transforming and offering themselves different histories, right? I mean, there are multiple histories that we could tell about every tradition. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's more complicated now uh, than it has been in part because the frustration is so severe, you know, and what can happen. All that said, here in America, as we know, we're, we're the most religious of any first world country. So regardless of what the numbers might say about those who identify as not religious, we're still way more religious mm -hmm. uh, than other groups of folks, particularly with the rise of evangelicals. So I'm not really sure whether or not religious traditions would feel the need to change, mm -hmm. uh, but some religious traditions probably do. We can look at various controversies that are happening, particularly within Catholicism and American bishops pushing back against Pope Francis or within the Jewish tradition. I mean, we can look at certainly contested sites. It's hard to tell traditions though they need to change. Would they listen? Do they? Uh, what will they do in various kinds of outreach? Um, but I think that certainly various religious traditions are picking up in their outreach and they're quite successful. There's no shortage of mega churches that exert enormous influence here in the United States. So that's my kind of vague way of beginning to address some of the <laughs> questions that you ask. And if you tell me, we can kind of push further in one direction or another, or you can follow up with a totally different question. Uh, yeah, I need to uh, think here how I want to do this. I think that um, you make some very good points. Uh, and I'm also thinking about, um, I, I know that there have been uh, books and attempts to say that, you know, for example, that Christianity has to change. I, there was one, I forget, it's a bishop, uh, and the title of the book is Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Um, I think that's about 10, 20 years old now. And it also, I think, seems to be that maybe part of this growing uh, demographic is in response to the fact, not that the churches don't aren't changing, but they're, maybe they're not changing quickly enough because you mentioned the economic aspects. But I would also imagine that something like the church's stance on LGBTQ uh, issues is also a driving force. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just labeling one of the forces, but yeah. there's no question. I mean, right. and this is part of the push for so many of the younger generation on social justice issues, right? Mm -hmm. They feel that a number of the religious traditions simply don't support their vision of a social world. Mm -hmm. And that for them, it's incredibly important. And this is also, you know, not to speak in too broad kind of brushstrokes, but for many of the younger generations, certain forms of identity politics are incredibly important. Um, and I don't just mean kind of what pronouns we use, but who we recognize and who can be part of the social order. And I think that a number of religious traditions have been slow to change and their histories are so visible um, that it makes a number of the students uncomfortable to identify with those groups. And at the same time, also to identify with being spiritual. It's interesting in my own work with kind of 20 somethings, how often they will feel very comfortable engaging in spiritual practices, but not comfortable taking on 
the title of being spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, I think it gives them comfort to think, well, I'm not really religious, but I am something in some ways that the negation of ident identity is more comfortable for, the, for them than an affirmation of an mm -hmm. identity. Mm -hmm. And that's part of being stuck in an uncomfortable world of identity politics, which mm -hmm. says something about their engagement with the social world right now and the social politics of a lot of religious traditions that simply haven't kept up with what they want. And it's a form of protest. You mentioned the practices. And that's the question I want to ask is, do these uh, do the people who identify as spiritual but not religious, what kind of practices do they have? So this is a really interesting question, um, in part because so many of the practices they engage in can be either spiritual or not spiritual. Mm -hmm. So we'll find and kind of really interesting material about people who will start yoga uh, or meditation uh, for stress release or to kind of clear their heads. And then for them, it turns into a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. So it isn't simply that a practice either is or isn't spiritual, but it transforms for many over time, depending on not only their intention, but in some ways how they've been disciplined to come mm -hmm. and see this set of practices. We have no shortage of people who you know, engage in yoga like to reduce their like cholesterol or um, mm -hmm. for physical well-being, and then others who do it with a kind of spiritual intent. So then the question is, how do these practices inculcate what we might think of as a spiritual intent? When is a beautiful sunrise just a beautiful sunrise? And when is a beautiful sunrise a transformative moment? Mm -hmm. um, we can imagine being in a hospital, watching a child born, thinking it as a kind of the most mundane human activity or something absolutely transformative. And what would inspire one reaction or another? Or another way to put it, how would someone be trained or disciplined or constructed such that they had one of the reactions or the other reaction? Mm. And I think that that's fascinating. Yeah. How, do we, how do we in some ways create a spiritual attitude mm -hmm. toward various activities? Mm -hmm. And again, this goes way back, right? You no, know, look at Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, Zen and the art of archery. I mean, mm -hmm. these are similar things, right? Can we turn mundane activities into something transformative with a different mindset. And I think we're having that now. Is going to a rally for social justice uh, a political act or could it be a spiritual act? Well, that depends. I have a couple of different questions based on that. Uh, one is, I wonder if the case is, you know, because what I wanted to ask is, well, what is it actually that makes a spiritual, you know, something spiritual in a sense, because that seems to get even deeper into the question, you know, when we talk about, you know, spiritual, but not religious, well, what do we mean by that? But at the same time, I'm thinking in terms of the function or one of the functions of traditional religions was to help guide people to these sorts of experiences. And if the traditional religions aren't serving that function anymore, people are going to search for something that does. So I, I, I 
guess the question is, you know, how are these people, you know, you said that, you know, we don't know what would lead someone to have a spiritual experience with yoga or, you know, what have you, but how are they, do we have any idea how they are fulfilling that? How are they achieving these things? That's, again, these are very tricky questions. Yeah. Um, what we do know is that a number of people who claim to have spiritual experiences or are so inclined are folks who tend to engage with the world and experience greater amounts of wonder. Mm -hmm. um, and that this becomes a kind of psychological orientation that uh, lets you know that someone might be inclined to experience the world in a spiritual way. Right. I mean, which is that you haven't simply explained everything away, that somehow the world is full of wonder and magic, <clears throat> which might help explain why so many folks have had spiritual experiences when they're taking drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. You can think of Michael Pollan and others now who are talking about, you know, I mean, this is this whole wave of folks who are taking psychedelics and whatnot. And part of it is when one has these experiences, they're very difficult to simply explain away. I mean, they do induce wonder, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if one's uh, having hallucinations, that is kind of wondrous mm -hmm. for many, where simply wrote recitation of a text that might not induce wonder, that might induce comfort, but comfort is not wonder. Right. Um, so we can think of spiritualities because there are plenty of folks too who identify as religious and not spiritual. Mm. They right, perform right. these activities and they're engaged in a religious world and the religious world makes sense to them and it offers them explanation and they take comfort in it, but they don't think of themselves as, as somehow creating a spiritual side of themselves. So it's an interesting question, right? So mm -hmm. people might have a certain psychological orientation that would lead them to perceiving things as wondrous and hence spiritual, as opposed to looking at a sunset, thinking, oh, I know exactly why these colors arise as they do. And in some ways, reaffirming for them the pleasure of a scientific orientation in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not spirituality. That is something different. So yeah, I'm not sure if that gives you much of an answer, but that it's a little bit of a way of thinking about spirituality as a kind of psychological orientation. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm used to thinking about um, spirituality and psychological terms. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung. So, <laughs> uh, so I'm right there with that. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, I, I, I think that even if, you know, I understand why the sunset may have the colors it does. And you're right that not every sunset is going to produce the same sort of feeling and sensations, but some of them do. Uh, I remember a couple of summers ago, I was driving back from Denver and I always travel on back roads and I was going through Arizona and I saw the sunset and I had to stop and I was just kind of observing the sunset for a while. And I've been driving for a long time. So eventually I thought, okay, I just need to get home and, you know, in the comfort of my home. But as I'm driving into California on the 10 freeway, the sunset was it, the sky just exploded. 
And I found myself sort of channeling John Muir as I'm driving, you know, I'm just shouting, you know, glory, 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 as I'm driving into the setting sun. And, you know, it was a profane setting. I'm there in my Toyota, you know, and I understand the science of the sun and why the colors are, but there was still something that was profound in that. Um, so I don't know that the science, you know, I, I've also heard scientific folks say that, you know, it, there's still a wonder of the natural world for them and a wonder to the cosmos. So then the question, as an ethnographer, I would say, does this moment where you're driving on the highway, tired, doing something incredibly mundane, where you feel that the sun, in your words, kind of explodes full mm -hmm. of color and it kind of interrupts what is otherwise an incredibly kind of mundane, tedious mm -hmm. activity driving on the tan. Um, does that tell us something about the sunset or does that tell us something about you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a glorious sunset, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in some ways what you found, what's interesting mm -hmm. for so many folks about uh, spiritual experience um, mm -hmm. is that it's at a moment where ordinary and mundane language fails. Mm -hmm. right, where you simply can't put to words what it is that you're experiencing. And right. it's precisely those terms as exploding, majestic, mm -hmm. wondrous, right, right. where it's simply where we find ourself, ourselves at a loss for words. Mm -hmm. You know, another way to say it is that, you know, spirituality and spiritual experience is really the demand for poets and mm -hmm. artists yeah, and musicians yeah. mm -hmm. to try to get at, you know, the inexplicable, the ineffable, yeah. what we can't quite grasp. Uh, right. And that feeling of ungraspability, I mean, mm -hmm. which is another kind of euphemism sort of for wonder, um, that's often a mark of spirituality, a mm -hmm. spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the same way one could have it by doing yoga, running, you suddenly get a high or a feeling or a sensation, which simply is beyond words, mm -hmm. beyond your understanding, mm -hmm. beyond grasp. And you're like, oh, maybe there's something bigger here. Uh, for a number of my students and others that I've talked to, um, sunsets will do it. Time in California among the redwoods will do it. Uh, you know, time looking out at the vast expanse of the ocean, looking, you know, at the stars and contemplating just how big the universe is. These things where you're like, wow. And this, you know, ties into you can think of, I mean. Plenty of scholars in other domains have written about it, even a connection maybe to Freud and the uncanny. I mean, you could go in lots of different directions here, but something where we get a sense of inexplicability, but also the something beyond our grasp and the hugeness of something, right? I mean, there's something that we are just a tiny part of something that's so much bigger. All of these fit into certain kinds of spiritual experiences. So there will be similarities, I think, going back to your earlier question between, you know, the spirituality of the boomers and spirituality of 20-somethings. But I think they come in at different points and like different entrances to the domain of spirituality, but different focal points as well. Um, not everybody embarks on the spiritual path because they watched a sunset, right. you know? Right. Others might simply feel that there must be something bigger here. For so many of my students, uh, and again, 20, I'm saying my students, but in part because I've worked with all these students and they've all done ethnography. 
So I've learned an enormous amount from the ethnographic work of my students, and I'm really building it on that when they've worked with other students uh, as a way to try to really get a grasp of what's happening among 20-somethings. You know, for a lot of them, um, issues of climate change and climate justice are absolutely at the fore. And they're looking at trying to like make sense of climate. And it all mm -hmm. seems so huge. Mm -hmm. And the world's approach to it seems so wrong. And they feel some sense of commonality, recognizing mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm part of an environment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when we think of social justice now, for many of our students, they're like, yeah, let's include the trees. Mm -hmm. Let's include the oceans. Yeah. And that kind of identity, kind of whether you call it transhumanism or something, for them, that can be a spiritual linkage where suddenly, wow, I'm connected with the trees and the ocean and the plants. I mean, that's a very spiritual sounding identification that makes you think of the writings of kind of like Native Americans, Indigenous Australians, but instead it's 20 somethings who've been, you know, spent the last few years listening to Greta Thunberg. Well, and I always take the approach of, in terms of the uh, like climate change and the, the ecological crises that we're facing, I always make the argument that it is inherently a religious crisis in the sense of the etymology of the word religion to reconnect, to rebind. And that what's necessary is we have to reconnect to the natural world in a very real way. And what you're saying seems to suggest that the students are feeling that as well. It may not necessarily be, how do I want to say this, from coming at it from a religious point of view, but it seems like it may lead them to that, if that makes sense. I mean, this is part of the fuzzy line between right. spirituality and religion, right? I mm -hmm. mean, in many ways, you could imagine a number of these students all coming together and creating, you know, you know, what Bron Taylor's called, you know, a dark green religion, mm -hmm. right? Um, he doesn't use the term spirituality. He uses right. the term religion, mm -hmm. uh, eco-justice, whatever. Could that turn into some kind of religious movement? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see it, but it isn't yet. And we just know that when we're using these terms like spiritual and religious, they're vague. Or actually, I'd say they have multiple meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of, you know, uh, Jay-Z Smith's famous quip about it isn't that you can't define religion. It's that you can define religion in hundreds of ways. <laughs> yeah. um, likewise with spirituality. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting to look at the spirituality of 20-somethings as a way of a kind of like a bellwether for issues that will be pressing uh, in this and the next generation and what could be done to turn uh, disaffected individuals into a social movement. Right. right? I mean, right. religions in many ways are social movements. Mm -hmm. And spirituality right now hasn't organized these group of students fully yet, or this group of 20 something students, but I wonder if it will. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I see some signs that it might, but it also makes me think of the distinction again, between the new age movement and what we're seeing now, because I know at the beginning of the new age movement, I'm thinking in particular of 
uh, the greening of America, uh, Reich, I think is the author's name. Uh, and uh, that came out, I believe, the same year as the making of a counterculture around 70, 71, 72, something like that. But in the greening of America, he was just going on and on about how, you know, we were going to begin living these ecological lives and the, the, the environment's going to take precedent. And, you know, I reread that book a few years ago. And as I was reading it, I thought you failed, <laughs> you know, we failed in this, that did not happen, but it seems like it may be happening now out of necessity. Yeah. I'm, as I said, I really don't know, you know, it's, uh, I'm not really in the predicting the future game, right, right, mostly right. because my predictions are usually wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one tries to make sense of what will happen. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm right, but this one just seems too big uh, right. to try to kind of guess what will happen. But it's pretty easy to understand so much of the spiritual, but not religious, mm -hmm. as a movement of discontent. Right. And there's a litany of things that so many of these folks are discontent with. Mm -hmm. And one of them certainly for the youngest generation is the way that we've handled climate issues. Um, and it will be interesting to see what religious traditions do in response to that discontent and whether or not they can bridge the distance uh, between their current positions and what this kind of group of 20 somethings really wants uh, and the rest of us too, but they're the ones who are the most affected. Uh, just have to say kind of anecdotally, it's been interesting working with my students you know, over these last years, particularly the pandemic, and for how many of them, long-term planning for them is simply impossible because they can't imagine a future. Mm. Um, I mean, with the rhetoric of kind of climate justice and forget everything else, rise of fascism, whatnot, mm -hmm. but simply on climate issues, it makes it impossible for them to talk about plans for 30 years, 40 years, basically anything where they have to imagine being old. I can imagine probably something similar to mm, that moment in whether it was the 50s or the 60s, you can choose your moment where folks thought that a nuclear holocaust was imminent and mm -hmm. that none of us will make it alive because the nuclear bombs will fall. Mm -hmm. So why plan for some long future when it will simply never happen? But that's a huge transformation to have a whole generation of people who really aren't trying to do any long-term planning because they're not sure that any of us will be around. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's, I mean, that's the kind of moment traditionally where folks turn to religion for some kind of comfort uh, to do, you know, what Marx calls make the suffering sufferable. Like mm -hmm. how do you suffer through such intense suffering as mm -hmm. the kind of end of the world as we know it? And mm -hmm. Such might never come to pass, but the fact that so many young folks feel that way, mm -hmm. um, that's going to lead to a certain kind of crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, isn't it also, and I don't want to generalize too much, but isn't it also the case that many of the world religious traditions that we have were born in a kind of resistance to a social order uh, that had been going on for a while? Um, and a, uh, an attempt to create something more just. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but that's the interesting question. Will, in some ways, will the group now who identify as spiritual, but not religious, will the identity be the negation, like what they aren't? 
-hmm. or will they become united in what they are and what they want the world to be? Mm -hmm. And that might be the difference between a group of folks who are spiritual, but kind of uh, isolated or disconnected and, you know, a real social movement that could even turn into a religious identity. I don't know. Okay. All right. So um, when you teach this class, I had been looking at your syllabus and some of this you already uh, discussed a bit, but I wanted to try to dig in a little bit more because I know that you discuss the neoliberalism and this culture of consumption and the religious marketplace, the green spirituality, uh, the Asian traditions, you mentioned yoga and mindfulness, uh, psychedelics. And I even think there's um, uh, intersectionality and feminism uh, mm -hmm. and whatnot. I'm curious, though, in terms of uh, a lot of these, I'm still... I'm still unclear about how this is different than the new age movement. Um, I think I'm always going to kind of push back on that. Is there any one of these that you think is more influential in the spiritual, but not religious um, dynamic that we're seeing? Or is it, um, and I think that thinking in terms of the climate crisis, a term that uh, I learned was it's a wicked problem in the sense that you have all these, there's not just one cause, not one solution, but all these different strands. Um, and it seems like this is like almost a wicked problem in terms of religion, uh, trying to examine all these threads. Um, but I'm, I'm just curious, it, or, it, and I may be answering the question um, already. Um, do you think it's the, the social justice that seems to be what you think might be? Um, the primary driving force. Okay, let me first, first start with the, the New Age movement. Yeah. And I think, uh, I guess I'd say the, the New Age movement arose in a different kind of political world. It's mm -hmm. a different political world, a different social world uh, with different issues, particularly issues around climate, issues around gender. Um, but if we think about the spiritual but not religious, the not religious part, as being a response to a political world and feelings of discontent. 20-somethings mm -hmm. now are, have discontent about different things than their predecessors. Yeah. So in some ways, you could think of it as, of course, there are similarities with the New Age movement mm -hmm. of trying to connect with something. Uh, but here, I think uh, they have a, a different opposition. So mm -hmm. I should say, when I teach this course, I've been teaching it with uh, another professor, a professor of American religions, David Howlett. And it's been wonderful to for us to bring our... Uh, are separate backgrounds, but mm -hmm. as an Americanist and scholar of American religion, he helps me really think about the continuities mm -hmm. and about yeah. this as part of a, you know, a large conversation. Mm -hmm. So I guess in my sense is that this is, this is a chapter in a mm -hmm. larger book yeah, yeah. about kind of spirituality mm -hmm. and that the new age movement would be one chapter mm -hmm. and kind okay, of the yeah. spiritual movement we're seeing now is another chapter okay. with certain similarities, but kind of with differences. And just in terms of the differences, it might be, I think that um, the spirituality now, this brings to your second question about what are the threads and certainly the, the social justice part uh, for so many of our students, uh, or I shouldn't say students, I know that you're a professor yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The social justice part for so many 20 somethings is enormous and the climate justice part. Mm -hmm. So if I had to say two threads 
that simply weren't as pressing as they were before would be kind of social justice issues and climate justice. Mm. You know, for a number 20 somethings, really interesting to see, uh, there's some great writing about connecting up uh, Black Lives Matter with uh, spiritual movements is to think of that as could that be in some ways part of a larger, a kind of moral spiritual justice. Uh, and for some folks, yes, some of the kind of uh, members involved in that are, are very explicit in thinking about it as spiritual. Again, as I mentioned before, uh, Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, thinking about that as a particular kind of trajectory of whether you think of it as Christianity or spirituality, of fighting for um, fair wages as a spiritual activity, right? right? Not just claiming it in the domain of politics or economics, but thinking of it as, you know, this is a moral obligation that we have to work for economic justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my, I think those are my two kind of most interesting threads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting when I think of the threads that aren't as interesting for the students now. For most of them, yoga isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a moment a decade ago, of course, where it seemed like uh, an enormous number, at least of my students were all like, you know, becoming yoga instructors. And that was a particular path. Uh, for so many now, yoga isn't it. Uh, mm-hmm. And we'll find that, you know, even for those who kind of are doing yoga, it's less of a spiritual act than it was, we could say, simply a decade before. Meditation too. I mean, if we look at the mindfulness movement, uh, mindfulness has become so, we could say, commercialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a there's a tension within the mindfulness community, um, or say many tensions within the mindfulness community, right? I mean, there's, you know, MBSR, Mindfulness Best Stress Reduction, where you're doing mindfulness simply to reduce stress and kind of stripping it away from a kind of as a Buddhist practice and thinking of it as something that's really for particular kinds of well-being. Uh, the medicalizing of that uh, and also the mindfulness, which is, oh, I know you're really stressed about your work, but it's really your problem. All you need to do is meditate. For my students, some of the mindfulness rhetoric seems to be a way for uh, institutions that are embedded in overworking (laughs) Mm -hmm. either their employees or students and then telling them to meditate as a way of absolving themselves of the blame of overworking people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for them to get over it. So the mindfulness movement doesn't resonate for so many 20-somethings as a spiritual activity. It's either a, um, we could say, a a mental health self-care movement or part of the exploitative forces of uh, capitalism. So that's not really spirituality. So there are things that those are some of the ways we could say that's different from the new age movement, Mm -hmm. Um, or I'm not even sure if it's new age, spirituality of a decade or two. Mm -hmm. So I should say that one of the things that I like so much about thinking about spiritual but not religious is that this is a moving target. Mm -hmm. Whatever we're looking at now, we know in a decade or two, it will change. Right. Um, Right. You know, this is the political world will change. The social world will change. The things that people are agitated about will change and the spiritual kind of support and orientation to the world that will change as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. It might not. This is again, usually when I prognosticate, I'm wrong. Uh, But my sense is that this is a work in progress 
and we're looking at a particular moment and it's a really interesting moment in some ways telling us something about people's kind of fears and discontents mm-hmm. um, as well as the things that give them enormous satisfaction. Uh, I'll say one other thing that I find so interesting about the spirituality among 20 somethings now where for uh, this has always been a kind of bifurcation in the spiritual movement of how much of kind of spiritual experiences happen alone. Your example is perfect. Mm-hmm. You're in the highway. Imagine you're in the car by yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that you're in the car was. by yourself. Yeah. So there was this moment of, you know, our spiritual experience is kind of solitary or communal mm-hmm. is spirituality, you know, singular about me looking inward to find out how I connect to something larger inward, or is it how I connect to something larger in community? Mm -hmm. So I think there was a previous moment where many of the activities that people thought of as spiritual were things that were happened individually. You might be practicing Mm -hmm. yoga in a group, but the experience is really individual. And now we're starting to get more where I think people are thinking about kind of spiritual as part of a collective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something different. So I'm not sure which way it will go in five or 10 years, but that's an interesting, will spirituality be, I'm connecting to something larger by going inward, or I'm connecting to something larger by joining forces with others. Right, right. And it, you know, I- Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think Burning Man is an excellent example of an attempt to have a collective experience and it, you know, I'm also, I'm always thinking as well in terms of the trajectory of religion and spirituality in the United States. I, I liked how you said that this is a chapter um, in a larger book. Um, and I just, you know, said it's kind of this trajectory because I don't actually see this as something that is horribly new. I think what's new is just that the uh, the number is much bigger than what it has been. I, I, I often think that there have been uh, some false ideas about religion in American history. Uh, when I was uh, doing research on my doctoral dissertation, a statistic I found was at the time of the revolution, um, 18% of Americans were associating with a church. And that number was pretty consistent up until the Civil War. Now, I think that an easy explanation for that is just the frontier nature of the early nation. And people were, for the most part, not necessarily living in large cities. But there has also been this trend of awakenings you know, we hear that, you know, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. And that was always about the personal individual transformation, the transformation of self. And maybe what's going on, and I think that again, the new age, that was the 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 focus was on this sort of narcissistic and at its worst transformation of self. And I'm just wondering, um, because I think that you and I, you know, we're teaching to the same age group, but we're also teaching to very different demographics, um, I think, in many ways. I see that students want the connections, but I don't know that they're currently able to find the connections. Um, Oh, I don't think that, I mean, case in point, I mean, you know, the pandemic has isolated folks kind of old more uh, and atomized them. mm -hmm. Uh, 
I mean, it's a very difficult time to feel connected. Yeah. Um, I mean, the economic order isolates folks, the world of work, the world of being a student, uh, the pandemic, so many forces to kind of, to separate people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see why they would yearn for something, even if they mm-hmm. couldn't get it. Right. It, it seems a little ironic to me because another question I wanted to ask uh, is in regards to the media. And when I say the media, I'm not talking about, you know, like Fox or CNN or NBC. Uh, I'm referring to it more in terms of as a kind of a technology, because it seems that this number this community of spiritual but not religious, I probably shouldn't call it a community, correlates with the people who were raised with the internet. And one of the early, um, I think, ideals about the internet was that it could actually help in creating community. You know, social media is such a big part of it. Uh, But I, 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 I'm wondering, is it then the case that the internet has failed in this? Is it not creating the community that people originally hoped for? I mean, my own sense is no, it hasn't, right? I mean, there's so much uh, media that's kind of antisocial, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that it's whether you're thinking of, you know, the algorithms on YouTube and whatnot and Twitter that are just meant to kind of exacerbate kind of discontent or simply the way that folks are isolated. I mean, you might have a thousand friends on Facebook, but that's not the same thing as getting a handshake or a hug or simply enjoying a kind of intimacy. And, you know, my sense is that so many folks are looking for community and uh, social media does provide a certain kind of community, but it's also lacking. Uh, I mean, folks are looking for something else. And I'm not sure that even if they had all these folks around, they would still get it. And that might simply be part of the human condition. We're looking for some kind of connection that we can never get. So I'm not sure that Mm. this is new. Maybe it's just uh, more deceptive because there's this moment, well, I have so many friends on social media. I can connect with so many, and yet I still feel alone. So that might exacerbate the situation because maybe you feel like you should be content, but yet you're not. Nevertheless, uh, certainly what's driving part of this kind of spiritual but not religious is that the communities that are available for them are communities they don't want to join. Um, And that's part of the idea is, oh, there is a community in the church around the corner, but I don't want to be part of that church around the corner. And that's part of the identity, right, is that you're not religious in some ways, meaning that you're not part of organized religion. And that's actually a clarification here because... I think when people say spiritual but not religious, generally what they mean by not religious is that they're not part of an organized religion. Because often for many of the people who do identify as spiritual but not religious, they're actually engaging in a number of practices that are religious, that they've chosen from different religious traditions, but then they don't think of themselves as part of an organized religious tradition. So just to add the word organized in there, but also in some ways that this leads to a feeling of alienation, right? There is the church around the corner. They might even engage in some practices that I like, but I don't feel comfortable there. I don't feel at home there. I don't feel recognized by them, uh, which leads to a feeling of isolation and discontent. Do you have any idea on how this isolation 
might be overcome? I mean, how can people, you know, how can they find the others? I mean, this is like, you just asked one of the great, I mean, this is one of the great conundrums, right? I mean, how can we find community? How can we find love? How can we find that experience of caring for others and being cared for them? Like, if you can figure out that one, you can start your own new religion and it will be very successful. Um, I mean, these are genuinely difficult questions. I don't know. I mean, in some things, you know, you can imagine some of the answers, right? I mean, doing very traditional things that allow people to have that feeling of community, right? I mean, these are like having a family and having a family meal. I mean, those are like very traditional ways that people have felt connected going to, you know, becoming part of a religious institution and going to their services once a week, if not more. Uh, I mean, these are old answers to this very old question. I don't know what new generations will do and whether or not it will evolve such that doing these things online will somehow be satisfying enough. If someone goes to, uh, you know, a community get together or religious gathering online, does it do the work? And uh, that says less about the kind of the online event and more about the, again, the aspirations and intentions of those who engage with it. Uh, I know some folks who engage in, you know, they're kind of like weekly kind of like with their religious community via Zoom and they find it incredibly meaningful, even more so than before. And for others, it just doesn't do the trick. And it's not just a question of who's an introvert and who's an extrovert. Uh, there's something deeper here. I don't know. I don't know which way things will go. But how do people find community? That is a great question. And I feel like that's a search that just about everyone kind of engages in. Because I, I, I know that that was one of the goals very early on with the internet which did kind of emerge out of the counterculture of the, uh, you know, the late sixties and the seventies and some of the uh, big names, you know, that were associated in particular, I'm thinking of Stuart Brand who uh, had published the whole earth catalog and then created this online community, the whole earth electronic link. And the goal was that, you know, this would be a, a tool to find each other. And I think that there might have been some initial successes, but it does seem to me that you're very right in the sense that we probably do need some, you know, the hugs or, and for me, it's the eating together. There is something very primal. Uh, about sharing a meal with other people and just being able to have that presence and to speak with them is something that I don't think you can get online and develop those sorts of spiritual communities that can be maintained. So let me kind of, I want to kind of ask you a question here. Sure. So I think it's clear that for often for people to feel community, they need some kind of connection and for connection, we can use the term that you just used, presence, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have the sense that, oh, maybe if I have share a dinner online, everyone's there, they're present, but I don't feel their presence, as mm -hmm. you were saying, right? I mean, eating together, commensality. I mean, this is a classic ritual, right? I mean, there's there's no more classic ritual than like a meal together, right? Um, so the presence is there. So let's go back to your your earlier moment, right? Of you're driving on the highway you see this glorious sunset uh, and it feels amazing for you. 
is there a presence? Like, is this, so I'm trying to think of what might constitute a spiritual experience for you or for others. Does presence come to play? Like, do you feel like, is something in the presence of you? Or are you in the presence of something else? Or is, is there a kind of connection? What happens there? Yeah. No, I, I do think it's a, uh, a connection and something other than me. Um, right. And it was also, I would also imagine that I might have been set up for this in the sense that I was just coming back from Denver and I considered Denver home and my family, and this isn't my blood family, but, you know, my fellow weirdos, the people who I hold closest to me, they're all in Denver. So I had just had a uh, experience of several days of being in community. And so that was there, even though I was alone at the time, um, I was still riding on the high of that community, I think. Interesting. So one question or one possibility is that maybe part of the forms that we'll see that arise in kind of modern day spirituality will offer people various kinds of connection community. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of them will come online maybe some of them will come in other ways. And that, as you said, it's not just about me. Mm -hmm. And for those folks, they'll feel part of something larger, whether it's just a group of weirdos, as yeah. you said, <laughs> or that world of chosen family, mm -hmm. or some sort of community of like-minded individuals, maybe they'll find such a thing, mm -hmm. uh, as you said, online or not. And that it will probably be about something that isn't just about kind of personal satisfaction, mm -hmm. but somehow something bigger, mm -hmm. um, something more ambitious, right. something that connects them with something wondrous, if we want to go back to the earlier part of the conversation, mm -hmm. uh, or something that they can't quite grasp, right? The kind of, right. to the kind of the ungraspable. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is then to ask, what is it about modern religious traditions that just doesn't do that mm -hmm. for so many? why is it that kind of mainstream Christianity, Protestantism, Judaism, Christianity, go down the list, simply doesn't do that for such a large swath of Americans, particularly young people. So what do you think? I'm not sure. I, you know, I, like I said, I see this as a trajectory. And I think that the traditional religions in many ways have become ossified and they're not providing that avenue for this experience of something sacred necessarily. I think some do. Um, and I see that with some of the students, uh, at least some of my students, uh, in particular, those who are in more of the uh, kind of ecstatic Christian uh, uh, churches, uh, like Pentecostal um, church, uh, that they still, you know, they are able to go to church and feel the spirit. Right. But I think a lot of other students don't. And just because you go to a Pentecostal church doesn't mean you're going to fill it either. And I, I, I do think that they're on this quest for it. I ask students a lot, when was the last time you had a sense of awe? One of the things that someone will, you know, almost always raise their hand and say something, oh, well, the last time I saw, you know, the last Marvel movie or something. And I'm like, nah, I'm not talking about something, you know, because we have sort of 
bastardized the word. I don't know if that's the correct uh, language, but you know, things like, well, that's awesome. And it's like, no, you know, I'm talking, you know, chin on the floor sense of awe. <laughs> and overwhelmingly what they will tell me is, oh, well, yeah, that was the last time I was up at Yosemite or when I was out camping. It's almost always in relation to an experience of nature. It's interesting when you think about that feeling of awe. You know, it's in the past, it was kind of tinged with fear, right? Mm -hmm. You know, right. something kind of greater than you and the inexplicable is not simply wondrous or alien, but like, it's a little scary. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think our students don't have as many of those experiences. It's a great question for students uh, to sort of, to think about those um, emotions that are often connected with kind of religion or spirituality. I don't know what could be done to like kind of better accommodate them. Uh, and that's really thinking about them, accommodate them on the affective level. Um, it's easier to imagine what you could do to accommodate them on the political level, right? Mm -hmm. These are policy choices. I get that. Or economic choices. I get that too. But, you know, if we think about our 20 somethings, as you know, emotional creatures who have emotional needs, what are those emotional needs? Uh, and we might say, oh, you know, feeling of awe, but I'm not sure that that's what's going to drive them. You know, we could imagine them feeling of awe, feeling of ecstasy, feeling of comfort, feeling of being taken care of. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see as kind of these various spiritual movements progress, what becomes the dominant emotion what becomes, you know, the kind of the affective sensibility that uh, best explains, you know, the 20 something approach to spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. I've also noticed a trend in a lot of my students with interests in things like astrology and tarot. Um, and I think that that is a way for them to explore something a little bit different. And I wouldn't say that all of them are uh, examining these things, but I've had a good number. You know, I have students introduce themselves, you know, with everything online uh, right now, they always have to post an introduction. And I can't tell you how many of them now will ident you know, introduce themselves by way of their, uh, their uh, horoscope. You know, I think that's great. You know, if they yeah. can find some way to help explain themselves and understand themselves. I, you know, I take that as a good sign. Yeah. Um, it reminds me that I'd had a copy of the I Ching, um, mm -hmm. like in my free box outside my office for years. And then this past year, there was a student who's absolutely thrilled to get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So perhaps there's something to be said about that. Yeah. Um, but just to kind of, to circle back to kind of the thinking in a big sense about this kind of you new know, spiritual, but not religious as a particular kind of moment. So if we go back to our conversation, we had this idea, maybe there are chapters, right? We had a kind of new age moment. And now we have a kind of SBNR, spiritual but not religious moment uh, with a certain set of kind of dissatisfactions uh, and kind of orienting principles. What do you think that this might be leading to? Right? If we well, had to say, yeah. okay, what's the next? <laughs> do we have another chapter that's in yeah. the offing? Like if we could revisit this in 15 years, mm -hmm. what would we be saying? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that question. I think that this is going to continue on. I think that we're going to see a greater sense of interconnection 
Um, I think that people are already experiencing that. And I guess the one thing I really want to do is say that I don't know that we're going to have much of a choice because I take the reality of the climate crisis as a given. And I think that humanity is in for a world of hurt. I don't think that most people can imagine the future that's awaiting us. As you said, the, your students will often say, you know, well, why bother, you know, given uh, why well, have long-term plans, you know, look what's going to happen. Um, I think that we have to, in addressing this or responding to it, um, I think the focus is going to end up being on adaptation and out of necessity, that's going to be built on community and connection. I like that vision. Uh, I don't know, yeah. um, but I could certainly imagine that taking hold. I think it'll be interesting in the next moment of, you know, when I think of what's the next iteration. So if we're in a particular moment of thinking about climate change, uh, where are we going to be in that with 10 or 20 years? This is not an issue that's going away. Right. Um, I mean, it just isn't. So I don't know what the battle lines will be in 20, 30 years. Certainly for many of my students, you know, they're fascinated by topics of transhumanism. Uh, to what extent could, you know, there be animal rights or the rights of trees or others and thinking about the incredibly complicated way that not just that forests are connected and function as kind of one large organism, but the ways that we're connected with mm -hmm. them. I could imagine students thinking more about that where suddenly climate justice actually morphs into another kind of social justice, mm -hmm. which is, it isn't simply that we're thinking about the rights of those who've been deprived, we're thinking humans, but maybe also other animal forms. Yeah. So I don't know what now seems like two things might turn into one large thing, mm -hmm. or it might splinter into more. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Well, there's, I think there's a lot at play here and a lot of, you know, streams emptying into a much larger ocean. And I definitely see concerns with, you know, like animal rights and uh, environmental justice and whatnot. I want to recognize that, you know, we're looking at students who are in college and I, I and I want to take a moment and recognize that not everyone goes to college. Um, and so that's, you know, other communities out there. Uh, I still remain optimistic that somehow this kind of group of young folks, whether they're in college or not, uh, will somehow be part of a social movement that will push back against the status quo, um, particularly when it comes to issues of social justice and climate justice, mm -hmm. and that they'll most importantly get out and vote. Uh, mm -hmm and do what they can to kind of to bring about change that will support the political world that they would like there to be. Yeah. I was trying to earlier, I was uh, thinking, I can't remember the term, uh, but it was uh, a term that I believe Gandhi used in his uh, kind of teachings and uh, political actions. And it, the, the translation was something like soul force. Mm -hmm. um, and I forget the actual, uh, the terminology that he used, but I'm hoping that people will find that soul force and maybe that can be 
part of this spiritual transformation. I just have to jump in there because this is um, particularly with Gandhi. So, I mean, Gandhi's notion of soul force, and he does use the English term soul force, in his idea that when you're practicing ahimsa or nonviolence, it isn't simply a negation. It's not simply, oh, don't hit, right? Or don't commit acts of harm, that there's a positive aspect to it, that you're supposed to mobilize for him a kind of love, uh, which for him he calls soul force. And in Martin Luther King's rendering, it's agape, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the idea of it isn't simply a negative, but a positive. And that positive is an orientation to the world and an orientation to one another that brings a community together, but also possibly transforms enemies into friends uh, and transforms opposition into allies. I like that vision. You know, many, of course, look now at these ideas of Gandhi and Martin Luther King and think they're impractical. I like the idea that there are possibilities and who knows what the future has in store. Yeah. 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 I would ask you, uh, you keep telling me that. So I'm not going to ask you where you think we're going (laughs) Uh, because it seems like you're like, I don't know. Um, You're welcome to ask me about the future. I mean, I'll tell you that I don't, you know, again, it's, I could, I could tell you what I hope for. Yeah. Well, why don't, why don't I do that? No, you asked me what I thought was going to happen. So let me turn the question back to you. Uh, what do you think is the likely trajectory of uh, from where we are now? I really don't know. Um, I mean, it's a great question. It's the question that kind of, I wish I did know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what I'd like to have happen. Um, and that would be that somehow this movement of SBNR uh, turns from, in some ways, an identity that bases itself in a negation, a not religious, into something that's really positive and fulfilling, mm-hmm. such that you know this group of folks, instead of feeling disaffected, actually have that sense of community and feel empowered. And they actually do succeed in some of their issues that they're right now agitating for. So that we do see more social justice, we see more racial justice. We see more kind of justice for kind of like kind of sexual orientation, LGBTQ, um, and that we also see kind of improvements on the climate front and that people do come together and they say, yeah, we actually want to do something about the climate and we're willing to make those accommodations. Uh, we're willing to change our patterns of behavior because we think these issues are pressing and important. And that in doing that, it will actually bring people together as opposed to isolate them. And that maybe, just maybe, there'll be a little less enmity in the world and a little more love. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, Do you see your students going along a path like that? I mean, part of what I'm thinking is that whatever happens, it's going to sort of erupt I don't know the language, you know, out of the unconscious, or it's just going to be something that evolves sort of naturally, I think in alignment with the current circumstances, do you see your students organizing at all? Do you see them building community? Yes. I mean, I'm fortunate and I live in you know, in Massachusetts and Western Massachusetts. And in some ways, that's something that's kind of supported uh, by the larger area that allows folks to have, you know, rallies and groups and kind of people coming together. And I'm also at an institution that fosters that, you know, among our students. 
we want our students to kind of get together, even if it means that they're protesting against us. Uh, I'm like, great, you protest against me. It's relatively safe before you protest against forces that might respond <laughs> in a more draconian way. Um, so I really do. And that way I'm incredibly optimistic. I mean, one of the things that, one of the, the brightest spots of my life is that I get to work with students who inspire me so much. And, you know, part of the inspiration isn't simply what they know, but what they do. And part of what they do is that they come together and work for change and work for change to make the world more just in their eyes and really pushing for equity and equality. Uh, and I think that's wonderful. So in many ways, when I look at this kind of movement of kind of spirituality among 20 somethings, my hope is that it grows and it's more successful because I really do think that a more justice oriented world would be a better one. Yeah, I, I do too. It reminds me of, again, the a, a difference between what we're seeing now and the sort of new age where it used to be the statement change, change yourself and you will change the world. Right. And the focus was always on the transformation of self. And I used to personally rebel against that and say, no, 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 no. Change the world and you will then find yourself transformed. And it seems like that is something that you're hoping for, that maybe that's the trajectory that we might be seeing. I like that vision. Uh, thank you so much. That um, I find that intellectually stimulating and personally comforting. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the only way to do it. You know, it's um, uh, cha cha change the world. Uh, I think this is a, a good place to begin uh, to end. Uh, I wanted to ask you: uh, Is there any place that people can go to find out more about you and your work? Oh, just my homepage. Um, if you go to Andy Rotman at Smith College, um, my homepage, and I have like my CV up with all my things. And I try to kind of put everything there in one place just so that people can find me. Yeah, I'm easy to reach. <laughs> all right. Well, well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. It was really uh, enjoyable to talk about all this and thought provoking. Um, you got me thinking. So I'm grateful. Good. Well, I'm grateful too. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode seven of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews really do help. And please consider subscribing. For the time being, I'll be releasing episodes every other week with the goal of releasing them every week in the near future. Also, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal to support my work. You can find links for PayPal in the show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace and flourish in all possible ways.